0: Hey guys, what's up? This is Justin Geike, and this is the Chase Outdoors podcast brought to you from the Chase Outdoors Man Cave, aka my basement, surrounded with my taxidermy friends just talking to you on the first week of November. And it's what an incredible, exciting time here in north central Wisconsin. The rut is in full swing. We're only a few weeks away from the Wisconsin deer rifle season. Thanksgiving's coming. Christmas is coming. I mean... What an awesome time of year. This is episode two, so I just want to take an opportunity and thank every one of you guys that reached out to me with such wonderful, positive feedback from our first episode. Pretty excited we can say we are a multiple episode podcast now. Pretty cool, but... At the end of the day, the whole reason we have this podcast is for a number of different things. We want to bring some cool guests, which we have some really neat guys lined up uh, coming here in the future. But we want to tell stories and inspire and entertain you. And at the same time, too, we really want to educate you on the gear that we're using, why we're using it, why we carry it in the store, and not just say, this is the only thing that you should use because you and I both know that that's a lie. We just want to say, this is what we use. Here's the features and benefits why. It may be something that you want to take into consideration or maybe using it in this uh, particular uh, situation where it, it could better suit you and help result in greater success hunting and fishing. But, um, with all this talk, I mean, it's so much fun right now because I can't get on my phone without getting text messages from buddies with you know deer stories, and we can't um, hop on Facebook without seeing all these trophy harvests going on. Trail cameras are lit up. it's just it's such a good time of year, and I'm super excited. The store is just crazy, swamp busy right now. We are selling gallons and gallons and gallons of DRP right now. And it's just, you know, the whole attitude changes, you know, we go starting usually in like July and we get into this, this pre-season type, uh, mentality. And it's kind of, you know, we build up in, in getting everything ready. And it's kind of like a little bit more relaxed, even though we're still busy. Cause everyone's in that position. Where we're like, we're here. The best time is here. And there's just, there's just, honestly and genuinely a joy that kind of resonates through the store because everybody's having fun and having some really nice experiences uh, in the woods right now. Um, I'm going to talk more in depth about the rut next week. Um, hope for the purpose of being able to talk to you uh, about a success story on my behalf, uh, but also the other thing too, we're going to talk about things like moon phases, wind direction, um, the rut phases, different types of scents, all that stuff. Uh, but what we're talking about today is South Dakota. And uh, the reason we're doing that, not last week, week before, just uh, John Kurth, one of our team members, and I were out in South Dakota, and we had an awesome, awesome hunt. We did uh, South Dakota, public land, do-it-yourself, open country, archery for deer, which, honestly, it's one of the hardest things that I've ever done. And I've done it before, and I've done it in other states, but it's just one of those things that's super, super difficult. But at the same time, too, it is so rewarding, and it's rewarding from... Sometimes different areas than just the harvest itself. So let's dig in. Uh, Typically, my buddy Brian and I go on a hunt out of state just about every year we've gone for for a long time. We've gone to several different states, Kansas, uh, South Dakota, Wyoming, uh, Oklahoma. I mean, we've we've bounced around quite a bit and, and had some really good times in some different places. We're at a point now where every other year we've been going to this same property in Wyoming for rifle for mule deer. and we've had some awesome success over the last couple of years. I killed my biggest mule deer buck uh, last year. It's just a phenomenal property. Um, I'd I just I'd almost go as far as saying it's it's easy, you know it's it's not. A matter of whether or not you're going to shoot a deer is just when and how big. And that's really nice. I mean, I don't mind it. I, I think it's a great time. We work so hard in our jobs and we work so hard on our properties here locally. and, and hunt. Like sometimes it's just nice for it to be relaxing and easy, which this trip wasn't. But it was still incredible. And sometimes the good things come out of the tough times or the challenging times or The failures, because what comes from that is experience in learning and growth. And I'm super excited about that. So here we are, even though our store is really uh, driven by the fall hunting season and up until and through Christmas, uh, I don't really get a break. Even though things are a little slower for us, or a lot slower for us in the months of January, February, March when we're getting dumped with snow. I, on a personal level, I'm still super busy with, with the operations of the business. I'm traveling uh, out of state, flying around to a lot of these buying shows and trade shows. I'm getting educated on new product and I'm, and I'm creating new assortments and, and making those purchases. And also too, we partner with a lot of conservation organizations, National Wild Turkey Federation, Whitetails Unlimited, Wisconsin Bear Hunters Association, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation just goes on and on at the local level for their conservation banquets. We partner with them to help supply them with a lot of good supplies, and that takes up a ton of time too. So I'm super busy, and I guess you could say I did a pretty good job of procrastinating. And what kind of happened is just the uncertainty of what I truly wanted to do. Things kind of got put off and put off, and next thing you know, deadlines for applications start coming and going. Iowa comes and goes. This comes and goes. So you know, as as a group of friends and stuff, we're talking about what are we doing for trips, what are we going to go do, and, and John and I haven't hunted together, and we really wanted to do something, and made the decision ultimately to go to South Dakota. And we did for a couple of different reasons. For one thing I love with South Dakota, it's reasonably close when you live in north-central Wisconsin. We're talking, you know, 10 to 12 hours to get in the area we were in, and even less if you're hunting the Eastern Western River Division, or if you're on the East River, it's it's even a whole lot closer than that. Now we're starting to talk like six hours. So it's a close hunt. Um, the tags are pretty reasonable considering just this rapid increase in out of state tags. I think we paid like 287, I think is what we were at. Um, the other thing was it fit into our schedules. So some of these elk hunts uh, that we kind of looked at wanting to do weren't really available and what was a conducive time for our schedule. A lot of things going on with the store. Other employees, uh, Adam and Andy, were out in Idaho for two weeks. So it was kind of one of the only things that really fit into the schedule, which is cool. I did it eight years ago. I had a great trip. I shot a phenomenal uh, antelope and had some great mule deer and the whitetail encounter. So I was excited to get back into this area and try it again because, you know, with eight years of time comes more experience, more knowledge in doing this incredibly difficult task of getting really close to deer in open country, especially on public land where there's pressure. Now, South Dakota changed their structure of their season this year for public land non-residents. They pushed the start date of the season uh, back one month to October one. And um, I think they're trying to keep some of the pressure down on the velvet bachelor group to I, I don't really know. Maybe it's outfitter related. I, I don't know. I haven't asked. I didn't even research, but I thought between that and this new deadline for applying for a tag, that we might see a big reduction in the amount of pressure that we were running into. And I don't particularly know if what we were dealing with was common or if it was less, but there certainly was not a lot of pressure from other hunters in the areas that we hunted. In fact, it was virtually uh, nothing, which was really cool. because South Dakota has got just oodles of accessible public land. So John and I leave last uh, Wednesday or two Wednesdays ago a- in the evening, and we made it over to Sioux Falls, uh, hit, the, um, hit the hotel for the night, and then finished our trek in the day. And basically what our plan was is kind of leaving earlier than we anticipated was hunting three very different areas that were kind of a bit of a ways apart from each other. And we thought, we're not really counting this per se as part of our hunt. It's more of just a scouting trip that just happens to chronologically butt right up next to our hunt so we get into this first area which is nice high rolling hills it's enough that there was some physical demand to it there was a lot of um, a lot of juniper timber in there a lot of places for deer to hide but we could also see a long ways it's in an area that was really really close to where i had hunted in the past and we set up just for an evening watch. and the one thing that i thought was kind of a negative is there was a lot of cattle in there and, and you'll still find deer mixed into the area with the cattle, but I feel like when there's a high population of cattle that those deer will kind of like push off a little bit. They're going to be in the same general vicinity, but maybe they're a draw or two further beyond where the bulk of, of these cattle are. And uh, we were probably not that far back. This particular piece wasn't really that big, and we saw some deer. Uh, we saw mule deer, a handful of them, uh, all does that night, but we just didn't feel... Like there was enough um, sign from Deer in there to really be a place that we wanted to stick a pile of time into. So that night we decided to pack up and head west into the Black Hills. And we stayed in Deadwood. And if you've never been to Deadwood, what a cool town. I've, I've been there a few times. It is a real big historic town. A lot of famous um, people with like Calamity Jane and stuff like that. It's a casino town. It's in... Just stunning, beautiful country. There's a lot of influence from um, the high number of motorcycles with Sturgis being close by. I mean, it's just a cool old place with a ton of history. And uh, we had taken camping stuff with us, but for these first couple nights in some of our movement, like just hopping on Expedia, I mean, finding rooms for like 45 bucks and you get a continental breakfast and a shower, that's an awesome way to go. And uh, we wake up in the morning and head out to uh, an area not far off the road, a place where a buddy of mine had uh, had some success in the past. And the Black Hills are a lot more different than these other parts of the West River. It's a little bit higher uh, elevation. It, it can hold snow and the rest of the areas like the Badlands don't. And it's It can be really, really thick. There's a ton of elk in there. There's mountain lions all kinds of other things going on in there it's just a totally different environment than when we were uh the night before and uh had to make one small adjustment because i learned that morning when we got out there that um somebody uh namely me had uh misplaced my binoculars two and a half hours away um or somewhere in between from where we were where we were the first night super embarrassing i mean super super embarrassing and um with the schedule that we were on, we didn't go back and get him. John had an extra pair, and we'll talk about glass here a little bit later, but just, you know, what a way to start, right? You know, just, and, and I am notorious. Like, generally, it's hats that I leave everywhere, um, almost as like, uh, it's my thing. I, I leave hats everywhere, and luckily, vendors are pretty generous with giving more at trade shows and stuff, because I'd, I'd have a very naked head if I only had one hat. But uh, sadly the second pair of binoculars I've misplaced in like the last 10 years and uh, it just was so far out of the way. We didn't want to waste you know, almost an entire day to go back and get these binoculars. And uh, it's not that I'm so filthy rich that I can afford them, but we were on a mission and we were on a schedule and we weren't gonna let anything get in the way of it. So we go into the hills and in big difference we move predominantly from mule deer to whitetails. And, and the black hills are an awesome awesome place to deer hunt it is loaded and i mean loaded with white tails you're not going to see the consistent ultra high scoring bucks like you do in places like iowa kansas missouri you know even even wisconsin i'd say but tons of really good white tails and there's still a really good population of mule deer mixed in there too just the, not nearly in comparison to the white tails and that morning um, we had, um, passed deer up. I had a small bot come past me, heard an elk chuckle, just really fun to be in that environment. Um, would have been, uh, perfectly satisfied being in there for the rest of the time, but didn't really fit what we had talked about wanting to hunt in our scouting. So we left that area and now we've got a full night and a full day and we head back towards the Badlands to set up camp, uh, in the national park in, in one of the campgrounds and we pull up. And it was like being in a rat-infested motel. It was so overrun with prairie dogs. There was virtually nowhere to put the tent up without putting it over a hole of a prairie dog. And those things were middle of the day, chirping like crazy. I'm like, how in the world am I going to sleep? Luckily for us, they didn't make a peep in the middle of the night, but they were crawling all over. And, And in the national park, we can't shoot, we can't hunt, so... There wasn't anything we could do about it. Otherwise, I'd have been happy to eradicate them. But uh, that was the deal. And we set up, and that night we went to go on glass. And here is where all of this time preparing for trips and spending time getting together, hanging out at our kitchen table at night in June and July and August and stuff like that, and using tools like Onyx Maps pays off. Because there's it's just... It's not rocket science in open country. You're looking for bedding areas, travel corridors, heading to feeding areas. We're not in the rut yet. We're not pushed out by snow yet. It's, it's pretty elementary. And to make it better, you're just trying to get further off the beaten path or using places that aren't receiving as much human traffic or pressure. And in luckily for with John's job, his full-time job, it gives him a lot of free time and he had done a marvelous job going and saying, okay, we've got nice easy walking. We can get back three miles glass from this point. We can then go to this area. You know, he had, he, he had really helped put a plan together and we had kind of gone through shared notes, conceptualized and, and built this plan. So we go to this area and before we even get there, there's a bachelor group, a two by two muleys up on this hillside and we go set down with glass. We're seeing a lot of deer move but they're all a long ways away. Not in a spot where we could just go and put a stalk on them easily. And here's where we come back to the optics thing. Like as a, as a woods hunter or a Midwestern hunter, most of what we do is pretty much just sit in a ground blind or a tree stand. A pair of eight power binoculars are really pretty much all a person needs for hunting. At least in northern wisconsin there's some open country in the southern part of the state but a pair of eight buys is pretty standard and 10 buys like a 10 by 42 is a fine pair of binoculars adequate average entry level glass is generally good enough out there absolutely not the case these deer are ninjas absolutely ninjas in basically vanishing into what at first glance looks like nothing so it's super important to have good quality glass, the best that you can afford. You know, don't go with, you know, take out a loan, but if, if you can get the next level, get it. Because it's the difference between saying, is that a buck or a doe, or is that a target deer that I want to pursue, or is it, a, is it a scrub that I don't want to chase? You know, whatever that be. And also, too, just from a comfort with your eyes. In a 10 by 42 set of binoculars is all a person would need in the Black Hills. But this Badland Open Country, you need, I think, that for your close-range stuff. But I also think you need a step up. You know, and historically, always for me, it was tripod and spotting scope. Like, that's what we always used was spotting scope and tripod, spotting, you know. And the one thing that I found, and John brought these along, and I found myself using them all the time, was what I'll probably be making a purchase for myself moving forward, not to replace the ones that I lost, but in addition to my optics arsenal. The spotting scope was really nice for super long ways or wanting to specifically see how many points does this deer have? What direction are they heading? Or trying to find deer hidden in specific pieces of structure. But for this rapid spanning of glassing and trying to find deer, I loved these Vortex Vulture binoculars. They're a 15 by 56, and, and although I haven't, I mean, just being transparent, I haven't like researched a ton of different options in this category. These were really, really nice. Um, media, I, I call them a mid-price point, um, you know, upper mid-range price point binocular, and they're marvelous. Crystal clear but that extra magnification really made it great for spotting deer quickly, being that you've got a larger field of view with both eyes open, uh, more ergonomically comfortable, and being able to move around, uh, more compact, easier to throw in a pack. I mean, just really nice features in, in this set of binos. Probably too much magnification for always just using as... A, definitely too much magnification for always just using as your standard primary set of binoculars. And where they really excelled was when we used in conjunction with a tripod. In... We could also use them by like setting them on top of our limb of our bow or if you had a monopod or just in the truck, you know, on the windowsill, like you could get them steady and they'd really shine. But on the tripod, it was a marvelous piece of equipment that really allowed, I would say anything two miles and under to do a pretty good job scanning quickly for deer that are on their feet. Now, if we're looking for deer that are bedded tight up underneath junipers, I probably still want to go back to the spotting scope if I'm really trying to micro break down smaller areas. But if I'm up in the move and I'm only taking one thing with me in, in glassing these large open areas, it's probably that moving forward. Now, as much as I like the binos, Vortex's vinyl, uh adapter, we were not fans of. It, they were shaky. They weren't solid. They were noisy. So what John found as an alternative was built by a company called BogPod, which a lot of you guys have heard of. They make a bino saddle that mounts on a tripod that's really kick butt. And basically all it is is a saddle. You set the binoculars on top of it, pull a rubber strap over the top, locks them in nice and tight enough that it holds them steady and you can really maximize that 15 power that the binos offer. And just for that type of country, absolute slam dunk of a system and I will gladly talk about that moving forward. Within Vortex's line, they have that high country Uh, tripod, which is nice and lightweight. John had the step up from that, which gave you a little bit more fluid motion um, with the the swivel brackets and stuff. So either one of those is a really good option, just depending on how much you're packing, how light you're trying to be. But big, big fan of that. So we're glassing this area and we're seeing all these deer move. And all of a sudden we start to see uh, some muleys heading up out of these deep draws from their bedding area up onto this flat top, which was a travel corridor to some private land that was uh, being cut for hay and had corn in it. So these deer were moving to this private land to feed and it was just set up perfect for intercepting them uh, from a stationary position to let them come to you. And that's another tip too, is like us Wisconsin boys, like all we do is sit in stands and sit in ground blinds for the most part and wait for deer to come to us. When we get out to this big country where we can travel and see, I find that we get caught up in the trap of wanting to drive around all over the place and move around a bunch and glass. Oh, like, there is a lot to be said, I think, for archery success in this open country by spending more time being still. And now that we've learned the area, and you got to move, you've got to move and cover ground to learn the area, but once you learn the area and you have faith in what's actually going on, you really will succeed by hunkering down and letting them come to you if the situation will allow it. And that was something that if we were able to go back for a couple more days, we would definitely approach it from that direction. But so much of what we're doing is, is we're on a seek and destroy mission. So we see these deer coming up and we're like, we don't have a ton of time. And they're a mile and a half plus away, but there's another access point. What the heck, let's go over there and try. So run, get back to the truck quickly. We drive down, come in on this other access point. By the time we get there, we're too late. They're already coming up. Luckily for us, they were does, but we knew there was a lot of deer moving in this direction. So we're getting ready to like set up and find a place to hunker down. I look, And I'm like, John, get down. We look super nice four by four muley. I think he's a mule tail actually, looked like a hybrid that was standing at the horizon, just standing there looking in our direction. We oh my gosh, this deer's going to take off for sure. He's boogering. We just sit down and we wait. And he keeps staring at us and staring at us and staring at us. And I just, you know, a whitetail? Never do that. Not in our country. He'd see us, he'd be gone. There's just no way. And then lo and behold, this deer starts coming our direction. He's a couple hundred yards away, but he's coming at us. And all of a sudden we're like, game on. We sit down, I'm in there, I've got the binos, John's on the bow and he's coming our direction and we have just enough time of light that if he just keeps on coming, it's going to happen. I look at John, John's heart's beating 100 to nothing. It's awesome. He's breathing heavy. I'm excited. And I am looking like, dude, control your breathing. Like it was, you're still 150 yards away and we're like, it's almost game time. Super cool. And he hangs back up and he's watching and it's getting darker out. And you know what that bugger does? he beds down and we run out of light. Awesome encounter, we're heading back out, there's like eight deer on the horizon that catch us moving out, you can see a nice mule deer buck in there, they bolt off, whatever, we're going back to camp, we're super excited, we're on deer. The next morning we go out and we're doing some glassing and John beds, John beds this buck and we make a decision to put a move on him. He's in a spot that is just absolutely textbook for how we're trying to do this. What we wanna do, sit in glass in the morning, watch a deer bed down in a place where we can get at him and go execute a stalk and get up. So we're looking and he's a long ways away and we start making our trek. And of course, I have to pick like the worst direction imaginable for us to go up this cliff face to get to this thing. But I felt like it was the only way with our wind direction and with visibility and stealthiness that we could get to him. And for me, I'm not super intimidated by incline or distance. Not that I'm in phenomenal shape, because I'm not. To be honest with you, a year ago, from this point, I was in the ER battling my degenerative disc disease. I was in the ER three times. I spent virtually the entire month in bed. It was horrible. Gnashing of teeth, one of the worst moments of my life. Don't wish it on anybody. So just the fact that we're out here is a miracle and a blessing for me, hands down. It's just... So again, back to, am I intimidated by this? No, not because I'm in exceptional shape. Just because if you take your time and you take lots of breaks, it's not that bad. You know how you eat an elephant. It's just one bite at a time. And it's the same thing too. This deer's not moving for six hours. So there's no need to rush it, push it, do anything. Just go slow, take some breaks, take a drink of water, talk for a little bit, whatever. You don't, there's just it's not like you're chasing an elk or dogging it through a mountain. Like, there's just no reason to not go fast. We finally get to the top of this thing, and it's pretty warm out. I'm saying it's probably 60 degrees out. You know, we're sweating like pigs, there's no doubt. I get to the top, and there's a spent rifle case sitting on top. And I just kind of chuckle to myself, like, this is the perfect spot. We come up around the backside, and we are perfectly positioned for John to put a stock on this deer. I stay up top in an area that I thought was a potential exit route. Because if he busts this deer out, the deer will run downhill because we're ascending from the top down on it. But given the first chance that it can in this particular spot, we know it's gonna turn around and try to go back up. So I move into what I believe is an exit, exit route. And I'm sitting there and time's going by and it's going by and it's going by and I don't hear anything from John. And all of a sudden I hear a noise and I think, that's that deer. I turn around and I always had a coyote run into me. And I just kind of chuckled and he ran over the hill. I'm like, well, With him going over the top, if that deer's in there, you know, whatever, I'll get up. I get up, and John's down there. He's in the spot, and he's definitely looking for blood. I get down there. He's excited. Gets 20 yards from this buck. Didn't know exactly where it was. Thing jumps up, stops at what he thought was like 45, is at 38. And this is just one of those things. like, it sucks. As an archery hunter, if you spent any amount of time in the woods... In any amount of time hunting, it just happens this way. You obsess over your gear. You buy the most expensive bow. You weigh all your arrows. You bear shaft tune. You paper tune. You shoot at crazy long distances all summer. And and you converse and you research and you practice. And then something goes wrong. Something goes high wire. And you don't make the shot that you wanted to make. And... I've seen it so often where we practice with perfect form, but you move to a position where you're tired, you're fatigued, you're rushed. and It just doesn't work out. John's arrow doesn't hit the 10 spot. And we look and we look and we look and we look. And it becomes glaringly obvious that it's a situation where we're not recovering this deer. And I mean, you exhaust all resources. You keep going. We hit a point where we realize that it's not going to happen and we're defeated. And it sucks. Like, it's just not fun at all. But here's the deal. With anything hunting or fishing related, as soon as you lose your positive attitude, you have failed and lost. You have got to rebound, pick yourself back up, and keep trudging forward. That's the only thing that you can do. And I've seen it, especially in fishing tournaments. Like, as soon as that positive mental attitude starts to waver, you start to skip stuff. Your boat control is worse. Your um, you, you The uh, the cast that you make, your sensitivity, your focus is elsewhere. And now you're not feeling that bite or picking up that line movement. You're missing strikes, and you're just falling apart. It's just a free fall. With that bad attitude comes basically complete and utter failure. And I think that really transpires in... Boils over not just in hunting and fishing, but so many things. There is such a such few substitutes for a positive attitude, and I'm not saying that I'm perfect at that. Believe me, but I at least I recognize the importance of this. So that night we go in glass. We see a bunch of deer. We have we have a nice sit, and we had one of them situations where you're walking back out and you're tired, and it's steep and. You know you've got draw one, two, or three to go up, and you pick the wrong one, and you add a couple hundred. I mean, we were pretty tired. It had been a long day. And we go and get some rest, and the next day, we've got some really tough weather coming in, so we decide to pull camp and probably, like always, overtrust the weather, man. And you really can't mess around with it, especially out there. South Dakota is not Wisconsin. It can go from really, really nice to really, really terrible, crazy fast. And what's bad out there can sometimes be really, really bad. So it was the right move for us to pack up camp, but wouldn't you know it, the front doesn't come in until like basically dark that night. So we kind of lose a day. So we're a little bit down in the dumps. We go and get a hotel to, to weather this storm. And it was a bad storm. Like the Black Hills basically got shut down. Nobody was really going anywhere. So the morning we wake up and we're basically like, we have got to hit the reset button. Fill the packs up with snacks, make sure you got enough fluids. We're going after this. Like we had this one hike that was way back. We've been talking about it for doing a month, doing it for months. Like it's time to commit. So we trudge way, way back. And you could just feel that positive attitude start to come back and improve. And for all the right reasons that make up a good hunt outside of the harvest. Cool things like almost stepping on a coyote and busting out, fist pump. That was really cool. Getting a glimpse of a mountain lion. Kind of scary, but still pretty cool. Fist bump. You know, watching these great big bombers fly low and slow overhead was pretty cool. Getting all the way back to the, the pinnacle of our hike and those beautiful views of the Badlands. Fist bump opportunity. Laughing and joking about how delicious blueberry Pop-Tarts are. Like, All these good things are coming together and we spend more than half of the day getting way, way back. And now we're starting to turn around and work our way back up. These deep breaks where these deer are coming up out of the deep breaks, up onto this flat to get to this agriculture. All of a sudden, John looks and he's like, get down. Bucks. Super cool. And these deer are out on a point that looks like a volcano like it's like you know it's like Mordor and Lord of the Rings like way out on this rocky point like all you have to do is just go like boo and you feel like they'd fall off the side crash and die which they can clear down that and back up twice as steep and twice as high faster than you can blank but we're uh, we're a little over 100 yards away from them and we start to formulate a plan so I'm going in The wind's blowing like 30 miles an hour, up to 40 mile an hour gusts. It's crazy, crazy windy, and it's in our favor. I start to sneak down on this line that was supposed to give me like a 40-yard shot. I get down there, and I kind of lose my track that I'm coming in on. Old Justin would have just plowed right through. But I've screwed up enough times, way more times than I've been successful, way, way more times. I've got all day, these bucks are like sleeping, eyes closed, legs stretched out, like no need to rush. And that's one of those things that's different about out here with bedded bucks, like slow down. Everything is slow down and be more meticulous because a lot of times like white tails out of a tree stander in the rut, things are running, everything's gotta happen fast. That's really not the case in this situation. So I make the decision to back out. It's the right decision. John's laughing. He's like, what are you doing? I said, honestly, I got lost. He's like, how do you get lost? I said, just, I didn't have the line that I wanted. He's like, all right. So we formulate another plan where I'm kind of coming over the top. I belly crawl my way up to the top. I peek my head over. Now I'm at like 80 yards. And I thought this is going to be perfect, except for one of the two bucks is further out on the point than I thought it was. And I'm basically directly exposed. Now the wind is still good in my favor, but I would have to descend 40 yards plus in kind of rocky gravel slope without getting detected. Now granted this sleep sleeping, but I thought that I had a lot better opportunity in plenty of time. So I back out again, we create another line. I take the boots off, willing to risk cactus and foot and all to make this happen. Like just going through and it's a big thing everything you do, it's really easy to get 100 yards from them. The next 40 to 60 or more is so hard, especially when you don't deal with this type of terrain all the time. So I'm starting to work down. I've got a good wind and I'm probably, again, 80 yards from these deer. I take one step and I'm like, That wind was cutting across, hitting the draw, coming down, picking up, swirling back, and took my scent right to those deer. I didn't even need to think about it. Those things are on their feet, down the hill they go, two other bucks with them. I didn't know we're there, and I blew it. Awesome experience. Like, super great, fun, incredible stock. Not much I could do. Don't know what I would do different. Learn something, just not exactly sure what it is yet, but awesome, awesome stock. Come back up you know we're like man we were so close thought it was going to happen was, i should have had a 40 yard like perfect broadside shot on this bedded on this bedded buck nice nice deer and we're and we're kind of talking it out we look and there's like four more big bucks with like 160 inch five by five standing there staring at us 150 yards run right now like there are deer everywhere we look out we can see a move like we are in the honey hole So we make the decision to go and move back and put ourselves in a position back where we saw that four by four a couple of days earlier and try to get whatever deer we haven't spooked yet to come up and come down this flat and and put ourselves in a position. And this is where talking about taking your time or setting yourself up and spending more time being still can be very successful now that we know how the terrain's laid out, how these deer are using it. It's not the rut yet. These deer are strictly doing bedding, eating, bedding, eating, and they have a tendency to repeat themselves when there's a good agricultural food source like there is in this case. And I'm and I'm getting set up, and all of a sudden I look and I see a buck, a you know, smaller one, but it's like the easiest stalk to kill thing ever. Like I walk over here, I draw my bow back, I lean over the side, kill him at 20 yards. Like it's that... Like, easy to commit to primo, and We've only got, like, a day left. So we make this decision, or I make this decision, to go move on this deer. And wouldn't you know it, that 4 by 4 is back in the exact same spot doing the same thing. And now it dawns on me that what this buck does is hits the horizon, pauses, looks for a long time, makes sure the coast is clear, and then comes in. <laughs> So as I'm watching this buck, trying to figure out what to do, that smaller buck comes up, up on top, blows out, whatever. I'm focused on the steer; can't get to him. Watch him walk right down the fence line to where we were kneeling the other day. If I had just gone in there and set up in the first place, would have been like easy potential no-brainer kill. So I end up with nothing that night, and I've got big ones everywhere, and there's just nothing I can do with them. I get back to John. John got drawn back on the biggest whitetail of his life, and it was just at a point where he wasn't comfortable shooting. It was getting a little dark, shot was a little far, decided to pull off. Pretty awesome. The one thing we've learned is that this is not a morning spot because the deer are moving from that agriculture back to the bedding area, and there's just no way for us to get to them from where we're at, at least not a good way. So the next day we decide to go and move into another spot. And I will tell you one thing. By this time now we're dog tired. We have put on dozens and dozens of miles, dozens of floors, like we're starting to get fatigued. We put some serious heat into this thing. And we're feeling it, you know, we're not pillars of health, but we're feeling it. So we start getting into this lower elevation stuff, this spot that I had hunted uh, eight years ago and had some really nice deer encounters. And what we're doing is it's a shallower draw Closer quarters, so John and I are on opposite sides, down below the top of the horizon, looking across. And when you're in these tight quarters, you have to be even better at stalking because it's take a step, glass. Take a step, glass. Like you need to be still more than you're moving. And when you take a footstep, you have to be completely intentional. Like I said, it's really easy to get within 100 yards of them. It's really hard to get any closer than that. So what it takes is just this incredible mental focus, like completely being dialed in and dedicated to details that include every step in every glass. Every time you take a step, you're changing your entire perspective of where these deer can be bedded in these junipers. Because we, by the time we got out there, it was too late to watch anything come in bed. Everything was bedded already. And we move it through. And next thing you know, I get a text message from work That was, was something that a fire that needed to be put out. And I got some Facebook messages from some other stuff. And then I see like a political post when I'm checking those, something's going on in the state that's kind of driving me nuts. And next thing you know, I find myself and I'm like way out in front of John. Well, why is that? Because I'm no longer paying attention. My focus is gone. I'm not focused on my foot placement. I'm not focused on glassing every single thing with every single step. I'm missing it, and it's just not good enough. Like to be truly successful on open land archery DIY, open you know public land, like you have to be better than that. I was also tired and I was also fatigued. So John and I do a, actually a, you know kind of regroup, do a really nice job getting all the way through the end, and now we're on this offshoot. And from everything that I've ever learned, it's that when you start to get to what I would call the base of these draws that have branches out to them. It's generally a spot, there's a lot of hiding areas, it'll concentrate deer better than just a single ravine. So I turn to go up this draw and I and I, and I signal for John to come up on my side. And John misunderstood my signal and he started going on the opposite side. We only got like 200 yards to go and I'm like, ah, forget it. We're going these 200 yards, we're going back to the truck, going back to where we were the night before. John feels the wind. He's like, yeah, forget it. I feel that the wind... Well, what do you think happens? 100 yards away, four Giants stand up. They're standing there staring at us, and there's nothing we can do. We were so close if we would have just finished and stayed focused and executed. Who knows? Do we get cut that distance in half and put ourselves in a position where we have a shot opportunity? It's just that level of constant focus and detail... That is what it takes to be successful at this, and it doesn't. The equipment matters. There's no question. Like everything matters. Like footwear is super important for one of these types of hunts, for for traction, for safety, for health. Like it just goes on and on and on. The brand that I wear is Kenetrek. And Trek has really become a big thing for me as an individual, just because it helps so much with ankle support that actually keeps my back feeling better. It's just healthy. I don't just wear them for hunting. I wear them every single day. There's a lot of other really good brands, whether it's Loa or Crispy, Solomon. like there's just a lot of different applications with really good footwear. But, but the reason that we chose Trek to be the brand that we carry in the store is just the sheer rigidity of it. It's a hard, tough boot with just impeccable support. And it and I and I honestly believe it's the only reason that I, I'm able to do these haunts and in have the um, physical condition that I do now compared to where I used to be. And, you know, another thing like looking at clothing, like simple things like Gore Windstopper or other garments with Windstopper, absolutely pivotal. Days when I wasn't wearing Clothing with windstop in out in that environment, which is just crazy with wind. I paid for it. I really truly paid for it. So windstop, absolutely a must for for hunting in out in that country. And the other thing, like too, is like dealing with cactuses and spot and stock That that sitka pant, that timber line with the knee pads in it, absolute game changer. Won't go anywhere out west without those again. So that's a big thing too. But I'm not going to get into the bows and arrows. I, I think there's a plenty of opportunity in future podcasts for that. But if I can pull anything out for this trip, it's that pre-trip study is absolutely worth every minute that you invest into it. The use of Onex maps and following the weather and all these things are, are all aerial photography is worth every minute that you invest. No question. The quality of the gear that you have out there is definitely worth it. Like One of the big things for me is like the Badlands pack that I wear, which is the clutch. I think it's discontinued now. But still, yet with that internal aluminum frame and the padding that it has, it really helped. In fact, I took mine to my chiropractor and said, based off of my physical condition, how should I wear this pack? And he showed me how to wear that pack. And I trained with it in that regards, too. I think that really helped keep my stamina, my physical condition to, to go and hunt this and put these miles on effectively. Um, the other thing is, is positive attitude in that incredible me- mental toughness. There's no question we as humans have way more brain capacity than a deer does. But here's the thing, we're taking that brain capacity and we are dividing it and separating it and dedicating pieces of it to so many different things, especially in American life now, which goes so crazy fast, whether it's your mortgage or your spouse or your kids or this or your job, like where we've got so many distractions, these deer seriously like eat, sleep, survive. So I would question whether or not they don't have more mental, I guess, skin in the game than we do. You know, the places that they pick to bed, you know, the intelligence level behind being able to bed somewhere that no matter what angle I come from those deer, they can either see me or smell me. Like that's a level of, of high survival skill. So you really have to either shut everything out and all the distractions that can have a negative impact on your mental condition and put all of your focus into the task at hand, I think really pays dividends. And of course it's not just hunting, but I don't care if it's that or fishing or anything you apply to life. Like the more focus that you can put into it with a positive attitude, the better the results are going to be. I'm going to cut this off here. I want to say God bless you. I hope you guys have great time in the woods, you know, in on the water, if you're still getting out uh, open water, that's coming to a close. Muskie fishing is still really good here for another wee little bit before things are starting to freeze up here. I'm going to come back next week. We're going to talk about the Wisconsin Whitetail Rut. If you've got any questions, go ahead and get on the comment section. I appreciate your feedback. Maybe I can learn something from you. That's super cool. I appreciate it too. Go ahead and hit that like button, hit that follow or that subscribe button. It means a ton to us. got some great things coming up. And once again, this is Justin Geike with Chase Outdoors Podcast. Be sure to check us out either in-store here locally in North Central Wisconsin or our constantly expanding e-commerce website. Lots of cool things, more coming at you with the podcast. Once again, have an awesome day.